Hello, everyone. My name is Miguel Rosso, and I'm a member of the Vancouver Global Shapers. Uh, we belong to the Global Shapers community, which is a network of youth under the age of 33, born out of the World Economic Forum to improve the state of our world through innovation, projects, discussions, and advocacy. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Professor Jiaying Zhao. How are you today? I'm good. Great. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Dr. Zhao is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and the Institute uh, for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia, also known as UBC, and the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability. I would also like to acknowledge that we are sitting on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. We believe that an important step towards reconciliation is acknowledging our role as settlers in these lands and advocate for the rights of indigenous peoples here at home and around the world. So I'd like to start out with a bit of a personal story and why we're doing this uh, in the first place. I came to Canada as an immigrant uh, after being forcibly displaced from my home with my family by an organized crime group in Colombia when I was nine years old. They spread misinformation about us, or I suppose today you could call it fake news in order to rob the home that my parents had worked so hard to save for. A corrupt local leader began to spread rumors that my parents were members of an insurgent armed group. Colombia has for decades faced insurgency warfare between all kinds of illegal groups who have sought to destabilize the government through intimidation and acts of terror. And in a country as polarized as Colombia, after decades of civil conflict, being labeled as a member or sympathizer of a left-wing armed group is a death sentence. We had no choice but to leave in the middle of the night, lose our home, and spend the next two years under hiding fear for our lives. We eventually found safe passage to the U.S. and lived there under, under political asylum in none other than Mississippi in the Deep South <laughs> before, before finally coming to Canada and calling this place home. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, I've experienced firsthand uh, the impacts of misinformation and polarization and how that can break down trust in society. But in a way, it's made me appreciate democracy even more and to not take the liberties that we have for granted. And I think it's fair to say that we are seeing a crisis of trust around the world, and it's something that we can no longer ignore. People worldwide, especially in Western societies, are increasingly suspicious of those who are in positions of power, whether it's politicians, the media, businesses, NGOs, even science. And the implications of that when it comes to climate science is troubling. The scientific evidence for climate change is undeniable. 97% of actively publishing climate scientists agree that human activities are causing global warming. Uh, I'd like to dive in into our conversation, Dr. Zhao. And once again, thanks for being here. Uh, you, you, you recently published a very interesting piece called How to Engage Different Audiences with the Same Graph, where you said, quote, despite the scientific consensus and climate change, there is a growing partisan divide in the support of, for climate policies over the last decade within the United States. So tell us a little bit more about that, uh, about this research project and how it came into being and what's, mm -hmm. what's driving this, this uh, partisan divide. Yeah, sure. Um, this is an increasing concern of mine. Um, I think our motivation came from the divide, the growing divide between Democrats and Republicans in the, in the US and liberals and conservatives uh, in Canada. Um, this is particularly troubling for the U.S. or North America, to a lesser extent in Europe. Um, and the phenomenon is basically, you know, 
I'm just call liberals and Democrats in the same group and conservatives and, and, and Republicans in the same group. Uh, everybody, I think, agrees that the temperature is changing, the r- temperature is rising, our climate is changing. Uh, that's unanimous at this point. What's uh, disagreed upon was the calls. So increasingly larger number of uh, liberals thinks it's it's because of human activity, whereas uh, less than half of what even much less than 50 percent of the uh, conservatives believe uh, this is driven by human activity. Um, this has several consequences, this divide. Uh, for instance, the, the support for policies on climate issue, uh, climate change, uh, is diverging. So something like 90% of Democrats, liberals, want to ins- institute stricter environmental laws and regulations, whereas uh, an increasingly, increasingly diminishing proportion of conservatives uh, want to do that, will support that. So I think, so these are public opinion polls uh, from the U.S. Uh, and Canada. So when I look at this data, my question is, what is causing this divide? Um, why do these two groups of people, you know, disagree with each other to a bigger extent over time? Um, and this is even more puzzling because NASA and NOAA have been publishing, and IPCC has, have been publishing, you know, data on climate change uh over these years, and as you said, the consensus, the scientific consensus, is very strong. Um, so, what is actually, you know, driving this growing divide? That was our motivation uh, behind this study. Um, I think we, I mean, as, as a psychologist, or more precisely, as a cognitive scientist, um, we provided, or actually, we hypothesized one possible explanation, mm-hmm. and we ran a series of experiments to test that. So in a nutshell, our claim uh, was that your prior beliefs and motivations um, actually change the way you attend to climate evidence. Uh, It changes the way you perceive climate evidence and ultimately changes the way you kind of behave, um, either in terms of supporting or opposing a climate policy. So that's, that's our kind of hypothesis. Great. And, and you were talking about, well, you just mentioned what is causing this divide. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. What is what is causing this divide? I think it has to start with uh, our motivations and prior beliefs. So let's say I'm a, if I'm a liberal, then I become entrenched in a way in this climate kind of concern. Um, if I keep seeing evidence of climate change. If I keep reading news about hurricanes and wildfires mm-hmm. and flooding, every piece of news I see suggests climate is increasingly getting worse. We are uh, suffering from consequences of climate change. We need to do something. So, uh, you know, that's fueling my concern. But if I'm a conservative, then I think from our studies, the, the, the behavioral uh, pattern is, I start with a disbelief or some kind of uh, skepticism. Um, I think, you know, climate change happens for non-human reasons. Uh, So I see fires, hurricanes, and flooding as part of the natural phenomenon. Uh, Just this is how, you know, Earth is is behaving, I suppose, not because of human activities. So I tend to, if I'm a conservative again, I tend to disregard that evidence is climate change, and I, I may even become more disengaged 
in this discussion. So I think that motivation can drive that polarization. Um, it's, it's kind of a positive feedback loop. Um, if I already believe in it, um, this is also called confirmation bias. I look at the same evidence to support my pre-existing beliefs. Likewise, I can disregard the evidence to protect my pre-existing beliefs. So I think that's, that's kind of the motivated perception uh, phenomena that we're trying to get at. Wonderful. And we'll definitely get back to the positive feedback loop and the confirmation bias in a minute. Um, I recall when I was reading in your research, uh, you noted that uh, that there was this graph and then you looked at the two control groups and that mm-hmm. there was one group who uh, who looked at the graph differently than the other. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about Because yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. we showed uh, participants the temperature, the global temperature graph right. from NASA. Um, that's the graph that you probably have seen several times uh, from 1880 to 2017 uh, or 18 at this point. Uh, the temperature basically goes up and down, but the general pattern is it's, it's, it keeps going up, especially in the last um, 40 years or so. So uh, we use that evidence as climate evidence because that's probably the most salient evidence that comes to people's mind. Um, and we uh, did eye tracking with participants as they're viewing this graph. So we tracked their eye gaze as they look at this graph and we're asked them, you know, what is the average temperature in right. the last 120 years or so? Uh, so they were looking at the graph and trying to figure out the average temperature and we tracked their eye gaze in the same, at the same time. So what we found was, um, if you're a liberal, though actually after the graph, we, we measure your political orientation. So you basically rate yourself on the scale uh, being very liberal to very conservative or left uh, to right on that spectrum. So what we found was if you are uh, if you are liberal, then you tend to look at the increasing face of the temperature curve. So you kind of so the, the the assumption here is if I already believe this is climate change or climate change is happening is because of you know human activities, then I'm more concerned about the rising evidence or the, the rising temperature. But if I'm conservative, I tend to look at the flatter phase of the curve. Interesting. Um, so that was kind of attentional divide that mm. we see between different groups. There was the instruction was the same, the graph was the same, but different groups of people see the graph differently. That's so interesting. And were there any experiments done? Because I believe that I read this somewhere in order to shift the attention from one of the groups into parts of the graph that they would not naturally look into? Is that something that you also yeah, experimented with? Or? we did. Yeah. So we tried to draw people's attention to different parts of the curve, okay. the temperature curve. And how is that done? Because that's... <laughs> so the curve, it's it's gray. Okay. Um, we simply uh, painted the color in red. So we painted the rising curve in red or the flatter curve in red. So basically we, 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 we drew your attention and we, we verified that you did pay more attention to the red part of the curve as part of our attention drawing technique. Um, so what we found was actually really surprising. Um, liberals, uh, when their attention is drawn to the rising face of the temperature curve, they're more likely to act. By act, I mean they are more likely to sign a petition, uh, to stand with, uh, I think, climate action, to donate to an environmental uh, organization. So uh, so they're more liberals are more likely to act when they when their attention is drawn to the rising face of the temperature curve, mm-hmm. which supports their prior beliefs. 
Now, that was the opposite for conservatives. So conserv- conservatives were actually less likely to act when their attention was drawn to the rising face of the curve, which is inconsistent with their prior beliefs. So in other words, if I force you to look at the evidence that's, that's against your beliefs, then you actually are withdrawn. Mm-hmm. You're discouraged. Um, and that was one of the lessons we learned from this pilot study. Um, this goes to show that really you cannot shove information at people's faces and hope they will <laughs> understand it and behave, mm-hmm. you know, take uh, relevant actions in the same way. It's just, it's just not how it's going to work. Um, this also means that we need to devise different engagement strategies. Absolutely. And, and across the world, we're seeing these discussions about uh, climate change and the environment. And one of the things that I've heard from those who are more skeptical of the mm. science is the, is the quote, climate alarmism. Mm. Um, and I think that just correlates what you were talking about, that giving information is not enough. So in terms of communication strategies... Mm. Is there anything that can be done around that, or or are just or are people? Do they think uh, is 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 there really no chance or no <laughs> way of changing people's perceptions when it comes to climate change? Well, there are, there are. So uh, there's there's been some studies that show if you use the right framing to engage the um, conservatives, then you you have a pretty good shot. So this study uh, is done in Australia uh, by Paul Bain and colleagues. So what they did is um, they use different framing. So they framed uh, risks of climate change as threats to society and the economy and, you know, it's going to cost us. Or they framed it in terms of this is uh, investing in, in, in renewable energy is 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 good for the eco- economic and technological uh, development. Uh, or framing uh, climate risk mitigation strategies as building a warmer society. Uh, so all these framings have this kind of conservative uh, tone uh, that, you know, basically it's consistent with your ideology. So they use that framing as opposed to control, which is I think is just neutral. Um, then these conservative individuals were more likely to act on climate, climate uh, mitigation strategies. Uh, so that's actually really promising. Um, in, in other words, if you speak in the language that's consistent with their prior ideologies and, and motivations, then you will get their attention. Very, very interesting. I think it's certainly something that decision makers, people in business, people in different industries should really take note of. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it really hones in on the fact that everyone's different and we need to sort of tailor the messaging yeah. to people's priorities. And also just to sort of get back to what you're talking about, uh, confirmation bias. So. Mm. We live in the internet age, in the age of information, and or what do you think are the implications of, for instance, social media and having different sources that further uh, confirm your biases? Mm. And is that leading to more polarization, for instance? I think so. Yeah. I think social media, I'm, I'm talking about Facebook or Twitter specifically, I mean, their algorithm is effectively a positive feedback loop. Exactly. It's learning what I like to read, what I clicked on, what I liked, what I retweeted, and it's showing me feeds that are even kind of more extreme uh, than what I did. I think that's actually counterproductive. Um, that's what, what we call echo chambers. You know, if I just keep uh, uh, viewing 
news from my Facebook feeds or Twitter um, feeds, then I think the one of the consequences is that I become more entrenched. I become more convinced that this issue is true or this issue is false. Um, so one mitigation strategy to that, I think, is for viewers or users um, to consciously follow sources that contradict what you believe. Mm. I know it's really unpleasant, and I do that to myself, too. I follow, too, and I try. <laughs> yes, I, I follow several podcasts and, 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 and you know, just that, that are completely against what I believe, and they, they actually present really sophisticated arguments, and I, and I follow them, and I, and I kind of under, try to understand their perspective. Um, this helps me understand their perspective, and therefore I think I can figure out now how, how best to communicate with them. This is actually demonstrated or actually shown in psychology literature that if we engage in perspective taking, that mitigates polarization. So that's actually really kind of uh, effective. Um, if I try to learn where you came from, what made you think this way, what your motivations are, then I start to kind of be less entrenched and move sort of toward in a, a less extreme position or from a, a less extreme position. So I think that's, that's one way is just learn to be, uh, learn to take perspectives from the other side. That's, that's hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you really have to make the effort to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely one of those things that once you get the message out, and mm-hmm. it's perhaps a way of framing that, well, at least what I'm thinking right now is what would be the best way to tell people about that? For me, personally, it's about being curious. Mm. And even if you don't agree with the other side or the other news sources, it's just interesting to mm-hmm. hear other perspectives. Do you feel that that's a quality that people would want to go out of their way to learn things from the other side? Or is there anything that can be done to sort of push that message to just be curious and just hear what the other side has to say. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to, you know, build an infrastructure or even let's say whenever we have a discussion for it, we need to have people f- with diverse opinions. That's really critical. Um, this has been shown in s- experiments over 30 years ago now that having somebody who's not from your party or your group on the panel actually um, uh, leads to a more neutral kind of conclusion or, or, or decision at the end. This is actually a study done with jury, uh, with jurors. Um, so if we have, I think this is one thing as, as hosts or organizers can, can do is invite people from different perspectives, have a civil discussion, um, and think that would be more rounded and people will actually be better informed as opposed to having several speakers that are pretty much talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I've seen that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And you were talking about your research um, looking into the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that also applicable in Canada, all these? To a certain extent. Okay. Um, I I don't think our political system is identical um, Mm -hmm. to the U.S. one. And I, well, yeah, similar. I mean, if you take the extremes like the... um, Green NDPs as opposed to conservatives, then right. then you're sort of capturing the, the the ends of the U.S. spectrum as well. Okay, yeah. very interesting. But it's definitely food for thought and things that we can also learn from yeah. uh, here in Canada. And now I'd like to shift gears a little bit. 
uh, to talk about a big part of, of your research, which looks at individual drivers of, of sustainability. Mm. So we, we have an environmental crisis upon us. I think we can both agree on that. <laughs> uh, and even for many of us who recognize this as a fact, it can be a challenge to change the way we behave to be more sustainable. Um, your, your, your behavioral research has looked into lots of psychological principles to design behavioral solutions to tackle sustainability challenges. Uh, this include research into how to reduce water and energy consumption, encouraging recycling and compost, and engaging the public on biodiversity conservation, among many others, which is truly fascinating. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, how about we start with an overview of the Behavioral Sustainability Lab that you run yeah. here at UBC? Great, thanks. Um, <laughs> So my lab designs or devises these inventions that are uh, simple and cost-effective to implement. Um, our goal is to create a meaningful impact that can be scaled to society at large and not just within a certain population. Uh, so I think uh, that's basically what we're trying what, what we're trying to do in, in my lab. Um, and one of the interesting kind of puzzle of human behavior is oftentimes, we don't do the stuff we want to do. So how many times have you worked out this week? None. <laughs> <laughs> but if I ask you, how many times would you like to work out? Oh, many times. Okay. And, and, you know, I was just thinking about that this morning. So it's just kind of like a reminder. <laughs> but it is, it is a thing. And likewise. I, yeah, it is you a know, thing. I, I, I don't work out nearly as much like, okay. as, as what I would yeah. like to. Well, so, I'm sure it's more than me. So. <laughs> right. So, so how can we bridge that gap between our best intentions and our actions? So this is kind of the motivation behind our work. Um, this is different from education. Like I'm not teaching you what you should and should not do because you already know. Right. But rather, how can we remove barriers so that you can better align your behaviors with your intentions? So these are the, the principles guiding our intervention uh, design. So one of the, I, I'll briefly mention one example we did was simply use convenience, just make things easier. Uh, and uh, by convenience, I mean just, you know, in this study was uh, recycling. So we put the bins closer to people's doors. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we mean by convenience, is how far you have to walk uh, to, to, to recycle. And we found an astounding difference, you know, between, let's say, 40 feet and 100 feet, or even 5 feet and 40 feet. So you compost and recycle 130% more if the bins are closer to you than if they are just slightly farther away from you. Uh, that's just how powerful convenience is. And, and so I think w the, the lesson for uh, practitioners, um, or even policymakers, is that when we implement certain policy, um, we should keep convenience in mind. If, the, if the, the city of Vancouver wants to ban organic waste, which already did, they already did, mm -hmm. maybe uh, they can keep a clause in there to say, make sure the bins are closer to people's doors or easy to get to. <laughs> uh, in multifamily units, right? So that would be, like, I think that would increase the, the, the recycling rates in the city. Fascinating stuff, really fascinating. So convenience, I think that's one takeaway <laughs> from this one. Um, I was also briefly looking into, uh, into the environmental behavior portion of your research and the real-time visual feedback to mm. reduce water and electricity consumption. Can you, can you tell right. us a little bit more about that? <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, okay, great. So, um, Water consumption. Now, we need to save water, especially fresh water. 
because oh, yeah. of the drought and increasing fires and, and, and heat, et cetera. Um, but, but when we think about water consumption, it's our, you know, how much water we use is completely opaque to us, unless you have a smart meter at home, which very few of us do. Um, so unlike, like, you know, me- measuring your steps on your phone, which is immediate and real time, we actually have no idea how much water we use. Uh, that includes both hot and cold water at home or at work or on a daily basis. So this is the the motivation behind our our experiment is can we make water use more transparent and tell people how much water you use in real time? So what we did was uh, we devised a sink and a water tank in the lab. It's a dishwashing experiment that we set up. Mm-hmm. So you wash dishes in the lab. And the tank in front of you that you use um, as your faucet uh, either is transparent or opaque. So so when you t- turn on the tab, you see the water level drop, right? You see the water dim- diminishing uh, as you use the water, as opposed to it's opaque, just like our regular status quo. We don't see how much water mm-hmm. was being used. And that, and that's comp- like that's more implicit. It's not like we tell people, look at that water. No, we tell people, wash the dishes. And um, they, 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 you know, they would see the water uh, at a kind of a subconscious level. And what we found was uh, when the water tank was transparent, uh, people used 30% less water wow. than when it was opaque. Wow. 30%. That's, that's the goal of, uh, I think, the Greenest City Plan of Vancouver, uh, reduction of 30% water use per capita by 2020. Um, also the goal of California as well. Now, so that's a lesson of kind of transparency or just immediate feedback of your water, of your con- resource consumption. But it's quite difficult to implement um, in, in, in life because, I, you know, we're not going to retrofit our entire bathrooms or sinks. Uh, that's expensive. But nonetheless, that, that serves as a design goal for, I think, future right. uh, households and, and, and you know, uh, buildings. Yeah. And I'm just thinking now from a public policy perspective and maybe some kind of partnerships with the public and the private sector, of mm. course, changing our infrastructure at that level nowadays, it would be very expensive, but it's certainly something to think about yep. moving forward. Perhaps incentives could be implemented so that future households can have these elements to promote more sustainability within their within uh, their homes. Do you think yeah. that would be a reasonable yeah, Thank I mean, you. BC Hydro has the Power Smart program. I mean, right. they're doing an amazing job with the behavior change uh, uh, with electricity consumption. Um, but the incentives are, are tricky, too, because sometimes small incentives, these micro incentives, can backfire. The reason is if I know I pay, only pay, you know, a dollar for 10 more gallons of water, right. then I may, I may use the dollar as a justification. Like, I'd rather pay a dollar so I can just use more. And that's been shown in in other domains. Like we use that as a licensing tool to 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 use more. Um, so I would be careful when we use incentives uh, to nudge or to promote pro environmental behavior, uh, specifically to protect the the licensing and rebound effects. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the pricing. I mean, that's that's a discussion for another time. Mm. <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly. Uh, I have heard about pricing and being used as a motivator to change behavior patterns. But then again, that also raises the question of how fair is it to folks who are right. on the lower so socioeconomic right. status of, of society. So something to think about for yep. sure. Um, 
we're now nearing the episode of our uh, chat with Dr. Zhao from UBC. So you've done some fascinating research, uh, which I think should be taken into account by decision makers and folks mm -hmm. from all walks of life. We are to tackle the environmental challenges we face today effectively and without causing more division. So do you see any other opportunities to incorporate this research, all the research that you've done into sustainability campaigns, incentivize individuals' uh, mm. behavior choices, or even into public policy as well, or decisions by, by sustainability campaigns uh, to raise awareness, because like you said, ah. uh, clearly telling people the problems <laughs> is not enough and shoving information into people's faces. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so being strategic, I, I do recall you mentioned that yeah. and just tailoring the message according to your audience. Yeah. Um, so any more ideas? Or, yeah, um, so how we I'm working that? on a current project, uh, which is on uh, carbon literacy. Okay. Assuming that you know most people in the in, in Vancouver or in North America want to change their behaviors towards sustainability, assuming they have their intentions, there actually is a big knowledge gap in understanding your own footprint. By footprint, uh, I mean carbon footprint, just as an example. So we actually we have a paper uh, in the pipeline that hopefully will come out soon that shows uh, the public actually have very little very little idea of their own. One is their own carbon footprint, and two, what are the effective actions to take to reduce carbon emissions? So I think there's a huge kind of um, a knowledge gap there. To, to I think we need to bridge that in the first place. Now, having that knowledge, how can we enable you change your behavior? That's the second question. So let's say fly less. <laughs> uh, I recently did my own carbon footprint, and I was shocked to see how, how big a footprint I have. Um, and the, probably the most effective action for me to take is fly less. So how can I do that? So I've been requesting, for instance, you know, can I join through video? <laughs> can I not travel to this city and this country to, to, to give a talk, et cetera? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to really just change my behavior to lower my footprint. So I think there are ways to, to enable behavior change after you understand how your own self is is affecting the emission or the climate. Um, that's the first step. Um, and then in terms of, you know, instigating broader, you know, systemic change, again, I would say just, I suppose, sign and, 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 and or, you know, let me take it back. Um, s speak out your, your willingness okay. so that people around you know Okay. You have this intention. Right. And I think there is a tipping point in every society or community where if there's enough people that say the same thing, yes. then eventually everybody will. And the that. speed of adoption is increasing dramatically after a certain point. And the point so far is about 25%, okay. given several studies. Right. So how can you be that 25% to instigate broader change? Um, that would be my, you know, suggestion. Interesting. So, sorry, that was twenty-five or thirty. Twenty-five. Twenty-five percent. And is that twenty-five percent people thinking the same thing or? Um, no, behaving. 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 Yeah. Be okay. Yeah. S well, thinking it's hard to know how yep. you know, thinking by you know, like expressing your own of opinions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very, very fascinating stuff. Um, so I'd like to wrap up with a call to action for our listeners. So earlier in our chat, uh, just to sort of uh, t- uh, take it back to what we're talking about, uh, we talked about the crisis of trust that we're seeing nowadays. And then we dived into uh, political motivations and how they affect uh, the way that people interpret uh, climate change evidence and the implications of that in society and individuals and then we talked about your fascinating research on psychological principles to design behavioral solutions to address sustainability challenges. We quickly talked about the information age and confirmation bias and the mm-hmm. role of the internet. Just really so many things to unpack here, but I think it's I think it's a great starting point that will hopefully lead into further conversations about this. So, um, But at the same time, we, we do have an environmental crisis upon mm-hmm. us, and we don't have much time left to start making big changes to the way in the way that we do things. So uh, I think we can both agree that individuals and decision makers can no longer disregard the science of climate change. Mm-hmm. So uh, what would be your call to action for listeners to reduce polarization uh, or promote sustainability, whether in their lives or those around them, and to our business leaders and decision makers from all political stripes to address environmental challenges with the urgency that it deserves. So I know it's a pretty big question. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> so, but, but, but we do have time. So Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, let me maybe start from the top down. Okay. For uh, policymakers and, and stakeholders, uh, make things easy okay. for people right. that you're governing. Uh, that's probably my, my only lesson uh, that I've learned so far. Um, and for individual uh, citizens, I think you know one is to you know to, to mitigate the polarization. One is talk to someone who doesn't agree with you, who may not share your opinions, and don't get into a fight. <laughs> Calm down, talk to them, understand them, mm-hmm. uh, or get them to understand you. I think that's a first step. Just have a learn to have a discussion with somebody that you don't agree with. I think that that's a skill that's gradually disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sadly. And then two is understand your own uh, your own impact, either be ecological impact or carbon impact. Um, choose an area you care about. Understand how your lifestyle uh, is is impacting this domain, and then maybe identify a few actions that you can take. So that would be my suggestion. Fascinating stuff, and I think that's a great way to wrap up our episode with some tangible ways that we can start uh, implementing those changes in our daily lives, and and also for those making decisions about uh, how our country is governed, and also those in business. So I want to thank Dr. Zhao for joining us today, and uh, thank you for the fascinating research that you're doing. I think understanding the way that our minds work can help change the dialogue from a battle between us versus them because we don't have much time left to start taking those big leaps to promote a more sustainable future uh, for us all. So thank you uh, for all that you do. And you can follow Dr. Zhao on Twitter at Jiaying Zhao. Uh, we're going to post the link on the podcast. And also don't forget to follow the Global Shapers Vancouver at Shapers Van. If you're in Vancouver, make sure you check our events and projects to make this a more sustainable and inclusive city for all. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Zhao. Thanks for having me. Okay.